This is uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Uh, welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the pastor here. And glad you've joined us this morning, um, this spring, this winter and spring, kind of a mix of today, cold morning, spring afternoon. Uh, we are going to be journeying through the book of Luke. We're going to be studying the life of Jesus in the book of Luke. We're going to be looking at encounters with Jesus we're going to be looking at stories that Jesus told as parables. And the hope of all of it, the hope of walking through the book of Luke together is that we would meet Jesus there. That we meet Jesus in his word as he's revealed himself to us. And so whether you've met Jesus or met with Jesus thousands of times in your life or whether you've never met with Jesus and everywhere in between, this is a wonderful book to journey through to get to know this Jesus a little bit more. And this Jesus who we're studying, um, we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks as his mission is getting started in the world. We looked at a couple of weeks ago, the declaration of his mission, Luke chapter four, he declares, this is what I've come to do. And I'm the Messiah and I've come to set captives free and I've come to give sight to the blind and I've come to preach good news to the poor and I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to the world. That's his declared mission in his hometown. He announces that that's the mission of the son of man and they're not fans of it. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And then last week we looked at, well, before he even announced his mission, one chapter earlier, um, one section earlier, he actually was taunted and tempted by his arch nemesis to not ever begin the mission. That the devil came to Jesus before his mission ever got started to try and thwart it, to try to make it not happen. And so Jesus has already had his mission uh, tempted and taunted, uh, attempted to be dismantled by his enemy. And then Jesus uh, had to announce his mission that this is what I've come to do and people hated him for it. They wanted to kill him. And now this next story, this next encounter is the beginning of his mission. And the first thing that Jesus wants to do on his mission is he's gathering his band of brothers. He's gathering the people who will go on mission with him, voice crack. He will, he's gathering the people who are going to be on mission with him at the epicenter of his mission. He's saying, hey, I'm about to start this mission and I want you to come with me. And that's this call of the disciples. He, he doesn't have any disciples yet until this story. And so before his mission even begins, he's announced it, it's been tempted and tried, and now he's beginning it and he's gathering his troops, so to speak. So the story begins of the calling of the first disciples. Uh, Jesus is teaching 
Early one morning on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, as it's called by Luke, it's the same thing. Sea of Galilee, it's kind of in Jesus's hometown area by Nazareth. And he is teaching and the crowds are pressing in, if you can imagine that. They're kind of fighting for a seat, if you will. And so he, he takes a giant step back and now he's in the water. And he realizes, well, if I'm going to keep teaching and the crowd is going to keep pressing in, I've got to get a, I've got to get a better position. So he goes into an empty boat right off the, off the shore. He goes into a boat and he begins to teach from the boat in the lake to the crowds on the shore. He just takes this boat that belongs to a fisherman who happens to be cleaning his nets right there on the shore. It's Peter and his friends, his crewmen. He takes Peter's boat without permission. It's kind of an allegory there. He said, I'm, I'm coming onto your boat. I'm going to take this boat. And so the story kind of begins with this teaching, this crowd, and then but just a few verses into this little encounter, the, the narrative story, the focus of the storyteller shifts from the crowds that are moving in to Jesus having this very personal encounter with Peter over off this, to the side. Peter becomes the focus of the narrative. Peter becomes what the reader is to pay attention to in this story in Luke. Luke shifts this focus in verse four. He says, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So Jesus, standing in a boat, the crowds have disappeared, and now the real meaning, the real purpose of this encounter is about to happen. And now he looks at Peter, whose boat he's standing in, and he says, hey, Pete, I know you're cleaning your nets. I know that you just had a night of fishing. You didn't catch anything. Let's go back out into the lake and cast out into the deep waters and see if we can catch something this time. And I want you to imagine this scenario because this is very important. The context of this is very important to kind of see the encounter as it's unfolding. Fishermen in those days uh, fished at night. They had these massive nets and they would let down their nets over the edge of their boat and then they would kind of trick or dupe the fish into swimming into their nets and they would pull them on all up. Well, that can only happen at night. The nets were so massive and so big that the fish would see the nets in the daytime. And so Peter has just finished a night of fishing where they caught zilch. And then this random carpenter teacher is standing in his boat, by the way, says, hey, I know you just didn't catch anything. Come back out with me and let's try again. The offensiveness even of this suggestion can be felt in Peter's initial response. He says, master, which means on some level, Peter knew who this famous teacher was, but doesn't, doesn't know Jesus personally yet. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Like the insanity of this suggestion, like who are you? And what, aren't you some carpenter from Galilee? Like, what do you know about fishing? We just fished all night and didn't catch anything. And Peter's saying, we're tired, we're exhausted. I don't want to be doing this anymore. We've tried and we've failed. And Peter's response begins that way. We've tried all night and we're tired. I don't want to do this again. You're a crazy person. And then he shifts and he says, but at your word, we will do what you say. At your word, we will do what you say. So this little miniature transformation begins to happen in Peter. Peter's gonna undergo several transformations in this story. But the, this little miniature transformation happens when he begins by giving an excuse to Jesus as to why Jesus' suggestion is a bad idea. That's not going to work. We just tried all of that. We've been out all night. And then he shifts into trusting Jesus at his word. And this little dichotomy, this, this little shift, this, this polar swing that happens to Peter, he shifts his faith 
from having faith in his experience, faith in his expertise, into and onto faith in Jesus at his word. But please don't mistake this. This is true for us. Both instances, both poles, both options require faith. Peter had faith in what he had just experienced. And now his experience tells him what reality is. You didn't catch anything. And so I'm gonna trust my experience over trusting you. But then he shifts it. I will trust you over trusting my experience and my expertise. And please don't be mistaken that you and I are never not trusting something. We are never not placing faith in something. You and I are never not holding on to something. And most of the time, we're holding on to our experience to tell us what's real. We're holding on to our expertise to tell us what's real. And we're holding on to our own self-sufficiency to tell us what's real. Peter would say to him, we just went out all night. It doesn't make any sense to go out again. I'm an expert fisherman. I do this for a living. You're a carpenter. You know nothing. Let me tell you why this won't work. And then he shifts it to Jesus. We just sang it. I'll take you at your word. I'm gonna trust you. Even though I have no evidence to trust you, my experience up until this point hasn't told me that I can trust you. So here's the first piercing question of the morning. Where perhaps in your life is your self-sufficiency, is your experience up until this point, where is your self-sufficiency hindering you from trusting Jesus at his word? How does self-sufficiency and expertise hinder our willingness to take Jesus at his word? Because Peter has no good reason to trust Jesus at this point. No good reason. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus, we were just out all night. 10 hours at sea, we caught nothing. And you want us to go back out in the daytime when the fish can see the nets and try this again? That's ludicrous. That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. There's no evidence to back that up. That is not something that logically registers for me. But Peter says, the only reason I'm going to trust you, Jesus, is at your word. Translation, Jesus, I'm gonna risk taking you at your word. Translation, are you trustworthy? Let's see. And the Bible has the audacity to tell us that trusting Jesus at his word, trusting Jesus because of his trustworthiness is enough of a reason to obey him. But oftentimes we get stuck in this uh, inner, inner monologue. I will trust Jesus when it seems practical. I will trust Jesus when it makes sense for my life. Do you often listen to Jesus's word because it makes sense to you? Or do you often listen to Jesus's word because he said so? Normally, it has to get filtered through our own ability to reason it out, to make sense of it, to see if Jesus's word is helping us with the mission that I'm already on. And so in that scenario, Jesus, for many of us, myself included, becomes my advisor. Man, Jesus, that's great advice. Let me just, I'm gonna test this out. We'll see if this works. And I'll take you at your word if the advice makes sense to me. If the advice is going to help me with what I already value. If what you say is going to actually run through my litmus test. And then if at the end of it, it's helping me with my agenda, man, you're a great advisor. But when your advice ceases to make sense to me, then I don't really feel like trusting you. Great example for my life. Jesus as my advisor, not as my Lord. God is my master. 
Um, so biblical marriage, the way that uh, I would be called to be a husband and a father, uh, leaning into the wisdom of Jesus's word on what, on, on what that call looks like and what that call entails, man, I'm all about that advice when my wife and my kids respond the way that I want them to. When it's working and when my kids don't have meltdowns because I was so gentle with them, then man, Jesus, you're a great advisor. But how about when I'm gentle with them or how about when I'm listening to my wife instead of correcting her? How about when I do those things and they don't respond the way that I want them to? Jesus, that advice didn't really work. Because what I really want is for my life to look and feel a certain way and for my family to look and feel a certain way. And so when Jesus' advice can make that happen, I'm great with his advice. When his advice doesn't make that happen or doesn't seem to be making that happen, I don't know. I don't know if I can take you at your word because I've tried that before and it didn't work. And this passage is showing us that the Christ follower is to trust Jesus because he said so, because he's trustworthy even when it makes no sense, even when it doesn't give me the results that I think it should, even when it doesn't seem practical, even when my experience up until this point would tell me otherwise, just like Peter. So they do. They cast out into the deep waters and verse six and seven tell us that they are overwhelmed with the fish they catch. They fill up two professional Galilean shipping, uh, fishing ships, fishing boats, so much so that the nets begin to break, these massive nets that archaeologists have found that were used around this era, these massive shipping boats, about 30 to 35 feet long, those boats start sinking. So what archaeologists, what historians have done is they've taken these, these finds, these, these ships, these boats that have been found from, from this era and from this time period, and they've, they've, they've mathed it out. They've done the equation. Okay, if it's this many cubic feet and how many fish would it need to be, would need to be in the boat to cause both boats to start sinking? Like, can you imagine the amount of fish it would take to sink a boat? 60,000 tons is what they think. What historians believe began to sink these ships, 30,000 each, 30,000 tons in each boat. And then math equation goes, okay, 60,000 tons with this kind of fish means how much in that day could they have sold these fish for? 60,000 tons of fish. How much could they have sold those fish for and made at the market value, made at the market share, market trade the next day? Most historians believe around 25 to 30 years wages they just caught in one catch. And the catch described in Luke chapter five will go down in infamy. We're still talking about it today. Like it, it's, a, it's a legendary catch. We're talking years of income. We're talking the financial freedom and the luxury that they wanted. We're talking why they were out there in the first place to like get a retirement out of it, right? Like this is why we fish anyway, is to provide for our families and live off of this. The boats literally can't contain the amount of fish that they've caught. And in response to this 60,000 tons of fish, Peter responds in verse eight this way. Think about this now, this miraculous encounter. Verse eight, but when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why did Peter say that? Peter doesn't mention the fish at all. <laughs> like he's not, I've never seen this many fish. 
I've, I, I can't even describe how many, how many months and years of wages we'll be able to get out of selling these fish. Peter's first response after he has the catch of a lifetime, Peter starts talking immediately about his sin. Why in the world did, Jesus, or did Peter respond this way to Jesus's miracle? Nothing in the story has even come close to mentioning Peter's sin. Like the fish don't all come onto the boat and Jesus doesn't go, oh, by the way, Peter, you're a horrible dude. You need to talk about your sin first. Like Peter sees the miracle and immediately starts talking about his own sinfulness. When nothing has been brought up about his sin, why is Peter talking about his sin in reaction to Jesus' miracle? Because Peter knows that the point of the miracle is not the fish. The point of the miracle is to show him something about Jesus. And what it showed him about Jesus, please see this in the storyline as it's unfolding. Whatever it is, then we'll talk about this, whatever it is that Peter just saw about Jesus created an immediate response, like a Pavlovian response. Peter responds, when no one told him to respond this way, Peter responds by confessing his own sin. So what is it that he saw about Jesus that made him start immediately talking about his own sinfulness? It's that the greatness of the Lord always immediately exposes the sinfulness of mankind. The greatness of the Lord always immediately exposes the sinfulness of mankind. In the presence of God's greatness and grandness, Peter, please hear this, is not struck by his mortality. In the, great, in the, in the face of the, the greatness and grandness of Jesus, Peter is not struck by his own finitude. He doesn't say, oh my gosh, you must be an infinite being and that infinite makes me feel really finite. He doesn't say, look at your power. I've never seen superhero tricks like this. Man, how do I get that power? He is mesmerized by all of those things combined. He sees this miraculous display of who Jesus is and his immediate response is his sinfulness. His immediate response is his own impurity. Peter sees Jesus's holy otherness, his holy transcendence, and is struck immediately by his sinfulness. And the crazy thing is, that is how this encounter goes down every single time an encounter like this happens in scripture. When someone comes face to face with a glimpse of the holy otherness, the holy transcendence of the God of the Bible, this is how everybody responds. Abraham, the book of Genesis, he's pleading for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's pleading with the Almighty and he catches a glimpse of God's power and immediately says, I'm a worthless man of dust. Moses at the burning bush, he sees God in the burning bush, the great Yahweh, the great I am, and he falls on his face the Bible tells us. Job, at the end of the book of Job, Job's having all these conversations with his friends. They're giving really bad advice. And then God shows up in the last four chapters and says, let me tell you who I really am. And then Job responds to seeing who God really is in Job 42. And this is what Job says. Please hear this. Job's immediate response to a glimpse of the Almighty says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Happens to Isaiah in the temple, Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah gets this crazy vision of the Holy of Holies in the throne room of God and the angels are swirling around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's immediate response is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm guilty and I'm unworthy. 
happens to Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel the prophet who's in Babylon. He gets this crazy mystical vision of the son of man ruling the kingdoms of the world and his immediate response is he falls on his face in humiliation. It happens to Paul on the way to Damascus, the road to Damascus, Jesus with a blinding light shows up and Paul falls on his face. It teaches us about the holiness of Jesus. Jesus is showing forth the fact that he is a person of unbelievable knowledge, unbelievable power, unbelievable control, unbelievable sovereignty and might. Jesus shows, he pulls back the curtain, he pulls out the Superman costume, if you will, and when someone sees it, when Peter sees it, he sees a glimpse of Jesus's supreme superlativeness. And the normal human response to supreme superlativeness is to do what Peter did. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Luke 5 teaches us here something that the entire Bible teaches us all throughout. Anytime something like this happens, to get near to the living God at first is a very unpleasant experience. To get near to the living God of the Bible is at first a very unpleasant experience. Sinners are humiliated every time they stand before a holy, supreme, superlative God. Please don't miss, there's such little dialogue in this encounter. Every word is packed with meaning. Please don't miss Peter's first response. He, he, is, he is adamant that Jesus get away from him. He imperative, that's the grammar tone. He imperatively commands Jesus, get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. I don't wanna be near you. I can't stand being close to this kind of holiness. I can't stand being close to this kind of superlativeness. I don't wanna be near you. This is not Peter going like this. Oh man, Jesus, get out of here. But really, I wanna hug you. He is seriously telling Jesus to get away. Depart from me. I want nothing to do with you. Is it possible that to get near to the living God of the Bible is at first a very unpleasant experience? Which totally challenges our modern understanding of who Jesus is and who he came to be. We think Jesus is all warm and fuzzies. We think Jesus came and his primary concern was about helping me feel better about me. As if Jesus's agenda was to boost my self-confidence which if you paid attention to the announcement of his mission a few weeks ago, that's not at all what he says. He's not coming to help me feel better about me. Because the Bible over and over and over and over and over again, when someone gets close to the awful and awesome power of the living God, every single time they find out they are in deep trouble, they wanna get away from him, they fall on their face, they cry out, woe is me. They say, I despise myself in dust and ashes. They demand like Peter for him to get away. Anybody who gets near to God, anybody who gets close to the real biblical God falls into a dire situation. People get completely undone. Jesus's supreme superlativeness reveals people's humiliation. And you may think that's archaic. You may think that's antiquated religion and theology. You may think that's outdated, but please, before you land there, let, 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 let's put that aside. Let's put the idea that if you were to encounter the real living Jesus with all of his supreme superlative holiness, that you would still feel great about yourself. Okay, so you don't agree with that. Let's put that aside for a second. Can we acknowledge, and, and Tim Keller, pastor in New York, is so helpful with this. Can you, can you acknowledge for a second that you do that, we do that with each other? Like we do it on a human level without even thinking. David Brooks calls this the status sonar. 
<laughs> that when we see earthly greatness, when we, are, when we are encountering earthly superlativeness, we send out our status sonar, our comparison radar, if you will. We see other attractiveness, other talent, other skills, other gifts. There's an immediate comparison. There's an immediate ping. There's an immediate, how do I measure up against that other person? Do you know when it happened? It happened this morning when you walked into this room and you saw someone who you thought was more beautiful than you. You saw someone who you thought was more successful than you. You saw someone who clearly had it all together and you, and you just couldn't take it, right? Like it made you want to cower. It made you want to get away from it. And we do that all the time. And our status sonar, our comparison radar is always, always, always going off. If you haven't been in this town for very long, it happens on steroids here. Welcome to Nashville. The big pond of music and talent and drive and achievement and intellect and status. Welcome to a town of comparing yourself to see how you measure up in this city of being seen and being noticed and being somebody. Our status sonar, our, our comparison radar is always pinging. That person's attractiveness, how does it compare to mine? That person's wealth, how does it compare to mine? That person's influence, how does it compare to mine? That person's whatever category you've deemed most important, it's always pinging in whatever room you're in. And the only way we stay confident is to stay in rooms where our status sonar continues to make us feel a certain way. That's where our self-confidence comes from. I just need to be around people for whatever status sonar I've created still continues to feed the ego that I've built. My favorite, well, not my favorite, one of my favorite status sonar pings. Uh, it's kind of this postmodern way of doing this. Like we know we're not supposed to care what other people think. We know we're not supposed to really measure ourselves by other people. And so it's morphed into this really weird, sinister thing that we all do that like, I know I'm not supposed to care what other people think. So my status ping now pings out to you. Do you care what people think as much as I do? Or are you able to pretend that you don't care about what people think as much as I do? And now I can feel better about you if I can judge you that you obviously care what people think about you. So now my status ping gets its ego filled, gets its confidence from me believing that you care more about what people think than I do. <laughs> when really I, I clearly care about it just as much as you do, but the way that I'm gonna do it is by pretending like I don't care as much as you do. Am I sick? Am I, some, am I deranged? Is something wrong with me? Constantly wondering how we measure up by comparison. Are we in the right circles? Am I on the right side of history? Do I live in the right neighborhood? It's why when you meet someone new, um, after you've pretended like you care what their name is, the first two questions you ask them is, where are you from and what do you do? Where are you from? Okay, so that city's not cool. That town doesn't have anything going on. So now I feel better about myself. Or now the what do you do? Does your job matter? Does your vocation uh, register in my coolness radar? Does it actually give you points? And so I've got to find out how I measure up with you immediately. What's your name? Don't care. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> and then, it, it, and I, I'm the king of this. <laughs> I'm better at it than you are. Uh, here's, here, here's, here, it, it also feeds into why we all, <laughs> why we all uh, play the name game oh, you're from such and such. Do you know so-and-so? Because here, here's what that is. Here's exactly what that is. 
Um, well, if I name this person who has an elite status in my mind and you know that person, now I'm elite in your mind because I know that person. If I name someone who is elite in that area or that town or that city or that, that, or that part of, uh, of society and you don't know that person, whew, I'm way cooler than you now. So the name game is actually not about making you feel like you belong. It's actually about a status sonar, being able to ping and make myself feel a little better or feel like we're at least equals because we both know the same kinds of people. David Brooks says this in the book, The Social Animal. All day long, the status sonar hums along. The status sonar isn't even a conscious process most of the time. It's just the hedonic tone of existence. We're always, always, always in comparison mode by default. Always. Ping, ping, ping. How do I compare to you? How do I measure up to you? If I don't feel like I compare very well to you, I just avoid you. I don't wanna be around you. My status sonar is going crazy every time I'm with you. I don't like that feeling. And so, if, if we can admit, just briefly, that we all do that on a human level, if there's a God, how do you think that status sonar works with the infinite? How do you think that comparison game works when you encounter not someone who's like you, but someone who's entirely superlative compared to you? You know you're not holy you know you're not superlative. And if there is a God, he's not like you. And so the first thing you would do if you encountered him, the first thing you would do, because you do it every time else you meet somebody, your status on would go off. Do you know what pinging the superlative, supreme, holy otherness of God would do to your ego? It would decimate you. It would destroy you. It happens on like little levels when you meet someone who's better than you at what you do. Can you imagine someone who's infinitely better than you at everything that you do. When we get glimpses of his glory, glimpses of his awesomeness, our status sonars get decimated. So our response is like everyone else in scripture. It's why Peter is just being a human being right here. There's not, it's not, it's not to, that we can all make fun of Peter. It's the same thing. Get away from me. I am dust and ashes. My head is bowed down to the floor. I am not worthy to be with you. Leave me, depart from me. I don't wanna be around you. My ego can't stand being with you. And almost subconsciously, it's as if um, everybody in scripture has this experience. If this is who he is, and the status sonar pings back to let me know who I am by comparison, what could he do to me? If this is who he is, and that means this is who I am, what kind of power and authority does he wield over me? It's exactly what's happening to Peter. So Peter has this very biblical, very natural response in verse eight, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And look at how this narrative ends three verses later. This is Peter on the floor, humiliated in front of the infinite. And look at verse 11. The way this story ends, they left everything and followed him. They leave the boats. They leave the 30 years wages. They leave the marvelous catch. They leave everything and follow him. They leave a, an economic game changer. They leave a societal and status game changer. They leave the greatest catch they had seen in all their lives. And here's why they leave. They're more enthralled with Jesus than they are with their earthly treasure that they just caught. 
They found Jesus a treasure worth leaving everything for. And that's not hyperbolic, that's actual. They leave a, an actual treasure behind to go after Jesus. What would that take for you and me to do that? Like, I don't know what it is that you treasure. I'm imagining getting my treasure on steroids and staring at it and being convinced. I think I'll take Jesus instead. Because that's what they do. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you, Siri. That was, we should just end this right now. <laughs> <laughs> Depart from me. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if that was the Holy Spirit or not. Wow. That'll be on the podcast. Hope you, hope you got that, Connor. <laughs> Where were we? I don't know. No one understands, apparently. They leave their boats, they leave their catch, they leave their treasure behind, and they leave their treasure on a new mission. Because right before they leave everything behind, Jesus says to them, he tells them their new mission. He brings them into the new mission. From now on, you will be catching men. From now on, you will be catching people. They're brought into this mission of Jesus. They're brought into a deeper, more meaningful mission than the one they were previously on. Peter and the disciples will no longer be catching fish. They will be catching people. And that word that Jesus uses, from now on, you will be catching people. That word to catch, that verb to catch is so powerful. It's used in other places of scripture during wartime. Like when people are taking over towns during war and instead of just decimating everybody in the town, they catch them and capture them so that they might spare their life. It's the same verb. Like I'm gonna catch you that I might actually keep you alive. I'm gonna catch you that I might actually liberate you. I'm gonna take you captive that I might set you free is what Jesus says to his disciples. It's very in line with his mission from just a chapter before. I'm here to set the captives free. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm using the fish analogy, Jesus is saying, because that's your profession, you get this allegory, but you're no longer gonna be catching fish that'll die that you can then sell. You're gonna be catching men and women to set them free and make them alive. And I'm bringing you into that mission because, oh, by the way, remember one chapter ago, that's my entire mission is setting the captives free. That's my entire mission is proclaiming sight to the blind in the year of the Lord's favor, to set them free, to make them fully alive. I want you disciples to join me in doing that. And the connection here between the catching of fish and the catching of men is, is meant to be clear, right? So Jesus compares his own mission to fish catching so that they will connect the going on the mission with the fish miracle. Meaning this, hey guys, we're gonna go catch men. We're gonna go catch people. We're gonna set them free. Remember, that's my mission. We're gonna go on this catching to set free together. And oh, by the way, remember what I just did with the catching? Remember how good I am at catching? Remember when I showed you what my power can do over what you think is possible for the catching? I just overloaded you with catching. And we're meant to make the connection between the miracle and the mission. Jesus is saying to them, I'm taking you on the same mission that your vocation is in so that you understand I will overflow this mission for you. 
Translation, my mission won't fail. Will you join me? And yes, Jesus is also saying, when you come and labor alongside of me, there will be nights where you feel like you haven't caught anything. There will be nights where you're gonna have to mend your nets and you're gonna be exhausted and weary and you're gonna wanna give up and you're not gonna wanna take Jesus at his word. But Jesus is saying to them, my mission cannot and will not fail. And if you doubt it, look at what I did with the actual fish. I'm telling you the same thing is going to happen in my mission to make all things new. The filling of these ships will reach the ends of the world. And so the disciples go on that mission with Jesus. These disciples will spend their dying days on that mission with and for Jesus. A mission they were guaranteed before it even started that it would not fail. They're so caught up in that mission. They're so caught up in the invitation of Jesus to join them on the mission that they leave their treasure catch behind. So the question that should be before us, if, if we're connecting uh, the, the, the transition or the transformation of Peter, is how in the world does Peter go from verse eight, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, to leaving everything and following Jesus and joining him on his mission? How does Peter go from depart from me for I'm a sinful man to I'll leave everything for you? It's actually the, the complete opposite of depart from me. How does that happen? Please note how sharp that transformation is in the story. In verse eight, he's telling Jesus to get away from him and he means it. And in verse 11, he's leaving everything to go after and follow him. And the only thing of any substance that happens between verse eight and verse 11 is one sentence from Jesus. Everything else between verse eight and verse 11 is just commentary about the other people. But for this transformation to happen, Jesus says one thing and Peter is liberated. I wanna read verse eight through verse 11 one more time. Can you guys throw it up on the screen? I don't know which slide it's on, but it begins, uh, but when Simon Peter saw it, is that up there? But when Simon Peter saw it, verse eight, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Peter is transformed. Peter leaves everything because when he's terrified and he looks at Jesus, he actually doesn't even look at him. He's, he's fallen on the ground and he says, depart from me. When he says those words, Jesus's immediate response, Peter says, depart from me. Jesus says, join me. Peter is pushing away the almighty and in response, the same holy almighty God is saying, come close. Peter is saying, no, 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 no. I want nothing to do with you. And Jesus says, I know that. And that doesn't disqualify me from wanting you to join me. I know you think your sin disqualifies you. I know you think you're unworthy to be around me. I know that you're saying that this is uncomfortable for you and your ego is hurting right now. And I'm telling you, I want you for my mission you are seeing yourself rightly. You are a sinful man. And I'm telling you, that's exactly who I came to call on mission with me. Peter's response is the proper biblical response. Depart from me. He had been exposed, 
in his depravity, but just as biblically normal as Peter's response to the holy is, just as biblically normal as a human being's response to the infinite superlative holy God, just as normal as that is that we see in Peter, the same biblical pattern runs through. The infinite holy always responds to sinners the same way. Just as biblical as Peter's response to the holy is, is the response of the holy to sinners. Peter says, depart from me. Jesus says, come close, come close. Come as close as you possibly can and join me on the very mission for which I came. I know how you feel right now and I'm healing how you feel right now by telling you your sin doesn't disqualify you. You want me to get away from you and I'm coming closer you want me to depart from you and I'm saying, come to me, come join me on this mission. In every single one of the biblical accounts that I referenced earlier where people are falling face down, where people are, are humiliated on the ground, in every single encounter of the people recognizing by comparison their own unholiness, and they are correct in that comparison, every single one, the Lord responds to all of them with the same thing dignity and mercy. When Moses is laying on the ground in front of the burning bush, the Lord then calls him into his mission and says, no, no, I wanna set the captives free with you. When Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 is humiliated on the ground in front of the son of man, do you know what the son of man says to him? Dearly loved, stand up. The most stark response from the holy to the sinner is perhaps in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah is the prophet from Judah and he gets, catches this glimpse of the holy in the holy of holies and he catches this glimpse of the almighty and he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. And immediately, like instantly, the Lord sends an angel to come and touch Isaiah's lips with a burning coal. And this is literally what the Lord says to Isaiah after he says, woe is me, he's face down. I can't stand in comparison to you. Immediately the angel comes and says, your guilt has been removed and your sin has been atoned for. Every time a sinner is face down in humiliation, the Lord lifts their head with dignity and mercy. Every time a sinner is face down in humiliation, the Lord lifts their head with dignity and mercy. Psalm chapter three. You, O Lord, have been a shield all around me, my glory, the lifter of my head. God, I, just, I, can't, I can barely even take that. that when you're face down in humiliation, the Lord doesn't leave you there. He is the lifter of your head. And if you've seen the Almighty, you will respond like Peter, depart from me. But hear the words of Jesus in response to your humiliation. Come close. Come as close as you possibly can. Come close by joining me on the very mission for which I came. Let's pray. Jesus, our sin humiliates us, but your mercy restores us. And we may be face down in front of you, but may we hear the soft voice of our shepherd 
lifting our head. Would you lift our eyes that we might see you? Would you, would you cup our cheeks like a father to a child as we hear you say, come close. Come join me on setting the captives free. We ask all this in your name, amen.